Well, we could not be more excited to have a little bit of a, a chat and go a little bit down memory lane, but, but, but keep it in recent times as well. Um, were they one of the, uh, someone who's been covering basketball since we were born and knows significantly more than what we do about the history of the game and probably has a better perspective on the current game. Uh, Body Nodge, welcome to the Has Been Hoof podcast. Uh, thank you very much. It's so appropriate for me to be on a Has Been <laughs> podcast. <laughs> I love I love the title and it totally fits. Thank you. We, we, we figured we were a chance of getting you. We, we've, we've both been on yours. You've got the Brad and Body podcast, which we enjoy. But, um, mate, uh, let, let, let's get stuck into this. I We, we chat a couple of times uh, away from media and, um, one of the things that has come up a lot with the NBL in recent times, in my opinion, is this real significant recency bias to you know how great we are now, how it's always the best. And I always just felt uh, that as great as a marketing for the current NBL is, it sort of does a bit of disservice to to the past and the history of the game and the champions of the game. Uh, that we've seen. So let's start with a really open-ended question and say, look, tell us about some of the great players or great, whatever you want to talk about, stories that people who have only recently started following basketball should know about and should, as they're listening to this, if they're not driving, get on and go and Google someone or something. All right. Well, you, you, you always have to start at Leroy Loggins. Okay, Leroy, Leap and Leroy Loggins was the superstar of the 80s. And you know how for a long period in the NBL, you've had to go through Perth to win a championship. Back in the day, you had to go through Leroy to win a championship. Um, he, he won one with uh, West Adelaide Bearcats in 1982. Then the following year, the West Adelaide Bearcats lost the final he was playing. The following year, he went, he'd gone back to Brisbane, which is originally where he'd been recruited, um, and they played Canberra. And just over the next couple of years, right up until 89, I think, when um, when Canberra and North Melbourne were battling out. So for about five or six years in a row, if you wanted to win the championship, you had to go through Leroy Loggins, who was six foot six. Um, he, he, we used to describe him as a coat rack forward because he was thin. He wasn't, he wasn't muscular in any way. He was very lean, but he was a guy that could do everything. And I do mean everything, whether you needed um, a defensive stop, you needed a steal, you needed a rebound, you needed a, a brilliantly placed assist, or you needed a basket or a three. The amount of times I've seen him hit a game winners, you know, he was just head and shoulders above everybody. He won the uh, MVP three times. He won a bunch of championships. Um, and I just think the conversation for greatest players starts at Leroy. Um, and then I'm, I'm assuming we're talking more about imports like a, like a Ricky Grace, the man who led the Wildcats out of the wilderness as a player on the court. Um, and then there's, there's guys like Robert Rose. You know, the, I used to always – I was thinking, a Robert Rose, Leroy Loggins matchup, if both players were in their prime and hadn't sort of overlapped careers when Leroy was sort of finishing and, and Robert was just starting to impact, the thought of a computer game with Leroy and Robert Rose going against each other. Guys that just so professional and just whatever your team needed to win, that's what they would provide. And so when, when we get all excited about Bryce Cotton, I'll tell you what, I'm excited about Bryce Cotton. I think he's a great player and the best player of this era. But when we sort of just wax lyrical about 
him and, and anybody else that's playing now, like like Jalen Adams, he was impressive. Sure, he was impressive. But so was so was Brian Banks and there's there's Cal Bruton. Cal was a great player in, in his day. You know, there was just so many great guys, but but it starts with Loggins, and then for me it's Loggins, uh Robert Rose is the next in, in my list. You guys would have played against Rosie, wouldn't you? You would have played against Robert? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Bounced around. I, I missed him at the Southeast Melbourne Magic, but yeah, absolutely. The back end of yeah. career. Yeah, but I mean, the, the th when he played in Adelaide, the problem that, that the 36ers had with him was that he was so outstanding is that they just stand around and watch him. Like the, he would be making a move and drawing two or three defenders and looking for who he's going to give the ball to. And they're all standing there with their hands on their waist watching him going, geez, this guy's a freak. <laughs> and it's like, hey, guys, I need help. We're trying to win the game here. Somebody put your hand up. So that's where sort of Brett Maher learnt his his professionalism from was from Robert Rose. And he openly admits that, that, the, that when your best player comes to training every day and works harder than everybody else, this is that sort of Michael Jordan type of thinking. Um, everybody else just, you know, you've got nowhere to go. You've got to give your best effort all the time because your best player is doing it. So he, he's just one of those great examples. Again, a guy that's about 6'6", six, six, lean. He was more more um, physically uh, impressive or imposing than Leroy. But the thing I loved about Leroy, and you guys would remember, you, did you, I don't know if you crossed over with Leroy, but you would have seen him play, is the joy. He just played with such joy. He, he was loving it. When he stole the ball and went the length of the floor and threw down a dunk, he didn't come back giggling. But you just you see on his body language that, that getting paid for doing something that he loved was just the best thing that had ever happened to him. And obviously settled here and has become, you know, a part of our game and part of our history. That's really important. I, um, I, uh, I uh, obviously live in WA. And so this Bryce Cotton is the greatest Wildcat ever. Um, really irks me. I don't know why it irks me, but it, it, it irks me because I remember Ricky growing up as a kid. Now, the one thing that Ricky, yep. which I believe makes him the greatest Wildcat of all time, was he made Paul Rogers an MVP by what he was able to do. Yes. And Bryce yep. has yet to yep. be able to elevate anyone else's game around him. Uh, it's been based around him. Um, going, going off great players to absolute dicks um you were around the time when julius hodge i knew you were going to say julius hodge <laughs> stepped on brett Maher's signature on on the court can you just encapsulate that time period of julius hodge as a 36er uh when he left the stomping on brett Maher's name Give us your perspective of the whole Julius Hodge ordeal. Well, I've got to start at your nickname for him because I think it was you that came up with calling him, uh, because he was from Philadelphia, his name was Julius, calling him Dr. No J was, was an extraordinarily good description and one that I used many times subsequently in the paper. But look, when he first came out, Phil Smythe was the coach. And Phil Phil's attitude towards senior players, which Hodge was as an import, um, was he basically trusted them to do the right thing and he gave them a lot of rope. And Hodge thrived in that in that environment. And in fact, he came in as a replacement import and they made a late run, almost made the playoffs. And they were, they were looking like they're going to finish in the bottom area that particular season. So, so um, then Phil 
was relieved of the position and Scott Nettis became the coach. And then when Scott recruited Julius Hodge again, Scott's, you know, he was trying to establish himself as a young coach. And I think they, they had a bit of headbutting going on because Julius had liked the previous uh, administration of, of Phil and the way he'd gone about it and Scott was different. So there was, a, they, they had some issues along the journey. Um, I'm not sure that Julius always showed up to training when he was supposed to or that sort of thing, you know, that, 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 or I've got a you know, sore hangnail or something, I've got to sit down for the next drill because you don't want to run, you know. Um, so, so when he left, he left on, on fairly bad terms and he claimed the club owed him money and, and it got a little bit ugly. And it got, it got sorted out, but it, but he left. And but at that time, I think he felt he didn't have Brett Maher's support. Well, unfortunately for Julius, not only did he not have Brett Maher's support, he didn't have the support of anybody in the state, <laughs> you know, because of the way he'd left and the terms on which he'd left. So uh, when he when he reappeared as a, a Melbourne Tiger, we were kind of surprised because. You know, I know we're talking about tigers, but leopards don't change their spots. And you just knew at some stage that personality of Julius would come out. So you're playing in Adelaide. The crowd is giving it to him. Like the whole game, they were really on roaring at him and getting it. It, it took me back to beautiful days of Mark Bradkey coming to town. After he left the club, and the club was like, you'd have 8,000 people in there just booing if, if he looked like he was going to touch the ball. So Hodge was copping that. So in, in fairness to him, he, he probably had a, a cause in terms of wanting to react back to the crowd. Then Sixers should have won it in regulation. It goes into overtime and um, Melbourne Tigers win. And he's he, – like the he wants to give it back to the crowd, so he's just jumping around and Peter waving his fists and, oh, he sees Brett Maher's signature on the court. Oh, so he goes and he's, I think he spat on it first and then he stomped on it a couple of times. Well, you can't do that. You can't do that. You know, that's Brett is a saint in South Australia. And, you know, people came streaming down, down the stands, down the aisles. They were coming. And security is rushing in. And you remember, I mean, you were there, Mark. You you remember there was a you remember the yeah. everybody was yeah. the fact that he got to the change room safely was a miracle because as I said, people were coming down the aisles from the top tiers wanting to get a piece of him. And and it was just an amazing I've never seen anything like it before or since in that venue. It was how he got out of there alive. I don't know. I don't know how you guys smuggled him out because there were people waiting outside to get a second piece of him. Um, and then I've got to, gone to the press conference, which I normally didn't do because normally we didn't – I had to file pretty close to the end of a game. So I would just run up and grab a coach before they went to the press conference, grab a couple of quotes and quickly file. Well, this time you know, I'd rung and said, look, you know, this is going to – there's two stories here. There's the game and then there's this. And went to the press conference and both you, Mark, and, and Alan Westover were, were apologising on behalf of the club for Hodge's actions. And I don't know how he got out of Adelaide safely. I, I really don't. That's that's a miracle because so, he, he had invited 8,000 people. So just to lift the curtain uh, back on what it's like in Adelaide, uh, playing at the old distinctive Homes Dome, I think it was called back then. Um, but yep. the away team, there was like this giant ramp to go into the stadium. And yes. typically we could park across the street and walk down the ramp or you park in the parking lot. And they actually had to bring the car down the ramp 
to put Julius in. And I'd never seen fans on either side of the ramp waiting for the car to come out. Uh, and so as we left, we had fans on both sides, like tapping on the car, you know, banging on the car as yeah. we were driving out of the stadium, which was crazy. And then I made the stupid mistake of, because Julius wanted to go out that night of going, well, I'll stick with him just in case someone wants to fill his head in. Uh, I haven't had a worse night in all my life. But that's a, that's a different story. <laughs> hey, um, I, I want to go back and pick up the thread. You, you know, you touch on Leroy and a, a lot of things are said in basketball circles that are just taken as gospel. And one of them is that Andrew Gaze is the greatest NBL basketball player of all time. And, and I've always said we're not here. I don't like picking one across the other. And, in fact, I, I spoke to you as I was building what I called my shrine of the greatest. But if there was to be that, we sat at a Pete's Bar lunch. Jeez, this must be a decade ago. And all of the former players who attended that lunch regularly, and it was interesting, they, they did the countdown of the greatest Australian yep. basketball players or NBL uh, players of all time. And... You know, it got down to number two, and the shock on Andrew Gaze's face when he was voted in at number two, you know, it, that was quite comical. The room went silent, kind of like, like you said, someone had shot Bambi, and, and Leroy was actually voted by his peers. Geez, this must be 10 or 15 yep. years ago as the greatest NBL player of all time. So, I, I, to, to your point, I, I just don't think people spend enough time actually researching and going back and evaluating some of the great players we've had like Leroy? Well, I think I'll, I'll, these days, you know, you quote, you equate greatness or a lot of people equate great, greatness in an individual by their MVP awards, but it's a team sport. And so I know Andrew's won, won the MVP seven times and Leroy won it three times, but Leroy won championships with West Adelaide. He won championships with Brisbane Bullets, he, multiple, at least four or five. And, and he was often the MVP of the championship series as well. And I think what tends to happen or did tend to happen, maybe not so much now, but back in that era, if a player was really good at some point, you took that for granted. And Leroy easily could have won five MVP awards. You know, an MVP award goes to a player like Joe Hurst, who was a good basketball player, no question. But, you know, if, if you had a choice between Joe at his best or Leroy at his best, you wouldn't you wouldn't even flinch. It would be Leroy. So sometimes those MVP awards don't reflect exactly who's, who's the best. And I'm, I'm sure Andrew would have been shocked because he's, he's considered the, the best Australian. But the best Australian doesn't necessarily make you the best player in the, in the NBL and the fact that as you say Chris that it was his peers that voted in Leroy it just shows the the regard in which Loggins was held during the during his peak times because Leroy was a winner he used to say I, I don't predict I produce that was his his favorite line you know when you sort of say how do you think you're going to go no I don't predict I produce and then he would go out and he would produce you know but he wasn't that Larry Bird Trash talking guy. He just went out and just loved playing and loved. He didn't mind it if you wanted to rough him up or you wanted to whatever you wanted to try to stop him. He was quite happy with that. He realised that that was what the other team had to do. He didn't care. He would still kill you. It was it was wonderful. 
I love it. Hey, what, what I'm going to do, it, it seems like an appropriate time. So when I wrote this, Sean, I'm going to read out who I put in, who I considered to be considered as the greatest who have ever played in the NBL. And I'll go through the Australians first. And all I'd like you to do is if a name jumps out, if there's someone you don't believe should be in there, if there's someone that I've missed, let me know. So the name I, the names I came up with as Australians, all and I, and I consider New Zealanders as Australians, as locals, given the New Zealand breakers. Kirk Penny, Andrew Gaze, Brett Maher, Andrew Vlahov, Sam McKinnon, CJ Bruton, Mark Bradkey, Phil Smythe, Shane Heal, Damian Martin, Tony Ronaldson, and Ian Davies. There are a lot of names in there that I think we still don't speak about enough. Um, anyone in that list that jumps out, anyone who shouldn't be there, and I've got this big circle around down the bottom. I've got Eddie Palabinskis, who I, for some reason I didn't have on that list because I just haven't seen him play enough. Eddie was an extraordinary shooter and scorer. Um, you, you don't have a 48-point game in the uh, Olympics, which is the record for an Australian, <clears throat> unless you can shoot the ball. And when I was writing the book about Paddy Mills, who had his 40-plus game in the in the bronze medal win in Tokyo, um, I made a point of looking back at Eddie because I was, in all honesty, I was going to try and <laughs> diminish Eddie's 48 points um, because it was in a, you know, just a, a regular game in the Olympics as opposed to a bronze medal playoff. So I thought, you know, I'll just see how many shots he took because Eddie Eddie never met a shot he didn't like. So I thought, well, maybe I can kind of diminish this and make Paddy's look even better. But he, he shot at about 80%. That 48-point game, he, he just hardly missed. So I thought, oh, well, better leave that alone <laughs> because he was, he was a phenomenon. But you didn't want to be his teammate. Because if he's on a, a two-on-one and he had the ball, doesn't matter where you were, didn't matter where the defender was. He was he thought he was the best option every time. So he was a difficult guy to play with, um, you know. But then again, a lot of scorers are like that. So I don't know I don't know where that goes. But but he the first time I saw him play, it was for a, a Victorian team playing against. Actually, the ten Victorian Olympians of 1976 were playing against South Australia in in uh, at a, the old Apollo Stadium, and he was just amazing. If he hadn't been in that Victorian team, they got beaten, but they would have been crushed if he hadn't been playing. He got 35, and he was up against the best South Australia had to offer, and they were really keen to beat the. 10 Victorian Olympians because, you know, Australia generally thought 10 might be a bit too many um, in a 12-man team. So well, you, you have, have said over the years that you had to be Victorian at one stage to be an Olympian because they ran the shuffle. Is that – do I remember that correctly? Yeah, but also I think I think – a lot of the time, Lindsay didn't play the political game of, you know, picking your, your your seven Victorians and then playing, you know, picking a couple from New South Wales and a couple from South Australia and maybe someone from West Australia or Queensland to keep everybody happy. I think Lindsay was like, okay, I'm picking a team that I can train with regularly. And if they're all in Melbourne, you know, if 11 of them are in Melbourne or if 10 of them are in Melbourne, we can actually have trainings because in those days... They were geographically west. Yeah, I, I think it's actually more to do with that, more to do with practicality, and he did, didn't um, he didn't really care what the rest of Australia thought, which I know would have upset you, Mark, being an honorary South Australian, Correct. Um, having you played know. for a South Australian state of origin. That um, Yeah, well, that's the kind of thing would have got right up your goat. Mate, you, you do realise that um, the night before I was drinking with Chris... Um, we went to the airport together. Uh, we landed in uh, South Australia. We had a drink. 
And oh. then we played the game. <laughs> and people were looking at Chris and I like we had two heads that day because <laughs> we were enjoying ourselves. We had a great we had a great time. But yes, as an honorary South Australian, yeah. I will say that there's one person that Chris did leave off his shrine. And that's because he's too modest, but dickhead yourself. Like for you to win two oh, championships in three years, what took 22 years for Andrew to do at the Melbourne Tigers, you were the best big man of our generation playing. You're the hardest to guard by a mile. You, every, every team had to game plan around how to defend you, how to try and get you into foul trouble and mate, easily make that list above Quite a few of those other people. Anyway, moving on. Let's skip to talk. Let's skip. I want to say as well that that's 100% correct. Um, of course, it, it is. You know, like the, I, I sort of likened you to Kevin Garnett in, in many ways when he went to the Celtics and they started to, to win. Like Wherever you went, you were the prototype of the new big man, the guy that could step outside and hit threes, and you had to honour that. And then you, So they'd have to put someone a bit smaller on you and then you just go and post them up. I mean, you were you were an impossible matchup. Yeah, and and what's that? Two two Larry Sengstock medals as well, or along the way, three yeah. maybe. Yep. Uh, yeah. So two. Yeah. Um. <laughs> well, the, 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 I, I probably do have Lindsay Gates to thank for the shooting party. What I will say, and thank you for saying that, but. I was so naive when I started that you both know the shuffle well enough and when I joined the Tigers when I didn't know how to play the game, the five-man would step out to the top of the key and the opposing five-man would just stand in the middle of the paint and hit Andrew and then hit Copes and then hit every cutter that went through. You know, I'd be guarding Bradkey, who's one of the best I ever played against, and I could just stand in the middle of the lane, not worry about him. He'd pass it on to Copes and go and run away and screen away and... I used to always remember thinking, imagine if this guy could shoot or was allowed to shoot. So after a few months, I used to just go out the back at Elwood Park and shoot hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of threes from that exact spot. And it's probably why towards the end of my – that was my favourite spot, that trail three as I'd finished. But hand on heart, I shot thousands and thousands of them every week just because I was dumb enough to think that I might, it was an open shot if I, was, if I could was do it. That was just when you so, were coaching. Um, you shot thousands and thousands of them, and that's just when you were coaching. This <laughs> is um, hey, so, so the imports we've, we've spoken a lot about um, Leroy. You, you've mentioned Rob Rose. For for me, you know, Darrell McDonald, you know, Ricky Graceworthy. You mentioned James Crawford is someone who tends to get forgotten when we do mention Ricky Grace and Bryce Cotton, and um, but but maybe body. You know, you had a really close look at, at Mark Davis. Um, I've got here's my little list, and do any of these guys stand out as special? Mark Davis, Dwayne McLean, Steve Woodbury, I thought was one of the yeah. most fun players to watch in my time, although he was only here briefly, as was Chris Williams. Um, but, but maybe, you know, Ken Richardson, Rocky Smith, and Al Green are three names. That again, I, I just can't find footage of. I, I, I've heard the stories; a lot of them are from you. Out of those names, tell us something, or tell everyone who listens to this, give them a reason to go and look up a story or look up a player. All right, Ken Richardson. The, the reason that there's not much footage of him um, these days is because he was coming toward the end of his career 
when the NBL started. So if you look back in the 70s as to what he was doing, he, he dominated in South Australia. He became the first American to win a Woolacott medal, which is our MVP award here. Um, and then it's sort of like, okay, well, he's dominating in South Australia. You, you had to go to Victoria. That's where the basketball was at its best during that period. The, the, the VBA was the competition you needed to play in. So Ken went over there and he dominated the VBA. He absolutely, in, in um, 76 and 77, St Kilda won an Australian club championship. They won a bunch of Victorian titles. He was MVP, led the scoring, all that sort of stuff. So he, he, had, he had shown that he was the best player in Australia, the best import that we had and it was really rare for South Australia to have an import of that quality or for West Adelaide Bearcats to have recruited an import of that quality. So then he comes back in 1979 when the or 1978 when the NBL is is in the process of being formulated. He's now getting towards 30 in the end of his career. He's a six foot six um, small forward slash power forward who in Australia is often playing centre. You know, and so he's too uh, wiry and clever for the for the buffheads that are playing in the middle at that time. You know, everybody that, that's over six foot six can you know barely chew gum and, and walk at the same time. So he's he's just dominating. <laughs> then 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 you move him out. You move him out to to play the forward spot, and he was he was deadly there too. So he gets the job as West Adelaide playing coach, and they they win. Five South Australian championships in a row, like 78, 79, 80, 81, 82. And the NBL starts 79, they make the four. 80, they lose the final to St Kilda because Rocky Smith kills them. And so he then recruits a guard to go with Rocky Smith, which is how Al Green comes into the league in, in yeah. 81, where again, they're in the top. Echelon, I think, finished third in 81. And then in 82, they win the championship with, with one of the best teams of all time because you got – at that stage, you had Al Green, who was an MVP. You had Leroy Loggins, who was an MVP. And you had Ken Richardson, who was an MVP. So they were the first club to suit three MVPs. I know we had it a, a little while ago with Sydney Kings with Andrew Bogut, uh, Jerome Randall and Kevin Lish. But from memory, that group didn't actually win anything, um, whereas West Adelaide did. And, and Ken – Ken was – he put himself on the bench as a playing coach. He put himself on the bench so that he could just watch what was unfolding and then give the team whatever it needed, whether it was rebounding, defense, or scoring. So in the semifinal that year, they win the championship. In the semifinal, he leads the scoring. In the final, he leads the rebounding. So, you know, like, like he just provided what you needed. But as I say, he was MVP of the league in his first year in 79. In 80, he was still all-star five. And then I think pretty much – he was coming to the end, you know, of his career. That's why. That's another reason he put himself on the bench, whereas most teams still would have started him. Um, and he's he's just a phenomenal player who, who unfortunately um, died a few years ago now. Um, but he he's definitely one worth looking up. But he will never make a Hall of Fame because. You know, you, you can't start a league in 1979 and think, all right, it's great. We're starting a league. Everyone's 22. Well, that's not the case. You know, you've got your 28, 29, 30-year-olds that, are, that yeah. are carrying those first few years and then they're gone and sadly gone and forgotten. You know, whereas a guy like Al Green comes in in 81 and um, he wins, he, he gets some to the semis. I think they came third that in 81. Then 82, he's MVP of the league. Um, and he was just, we had never seen anyone as quick as our like his ability to do things at speed was, was phenomenal. 
Um, whereas you look at Rocky Smith, who Brian Curl, who was coaching St Kilda at the time when he recruited Rocky, wanted to nickname him Magic and was trying to sort of push the Magic nickname. It's like, hey, the guy's name is Rocky. That's going to work fine. <laughs> and he was yeah. – <laughs> yeah, you don't need magic. He's 6'4", and he's he's a silky, smooth sort of mover and a great jump shooter and get past you. He, he was he – was, yeah, in the final in um, in 80 when St Kilda beat West Adelaide, West Adelaide had a guy called Ray Wood who was um, a three-time winner of the Best Defensive Player Award. There was nothing he could do. Absolutely nothing he could do, and he was he was the the, pro, the the forerunner of guys like Darren Lucas, Damian Martin. That was Ray, and and Rocky just schooled him, which is which is why um, they went and got Al Green for the for the following year to sort of shore up that area where they couldn't stop Rocky. Hey, um, you've been reporting NBL for a very 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 long time. And I'm sure there's stories that you wish you could have spoken about or printed <laughs> that you didn't end up doing. What is the best story, be it true or false, that you sat on that you weren't allowed to report on at the end of the day or you didn't feel right about reporting on? Um, oh, geez, there's, there's, a, there's a few of those. And usually well, they throw, involve... Throw a couple out then. We'll... <laughs> No, no, there's personal issues. You know, usually it's, it's something to do with a personal issue with a player, you know. Um, but I, I'll tell you one that I – where I – I wrote the story knowing that it wasn't true. And that was at, at the time when the South Dragons left the league and the league was in disarray. It was down to seven clubs and it looked like it was going to fall over. And at the time, Larry Sengstock was the CEO of Basketball Australia, which was running the NBL. And he had working with him a guy called Bruce Spangler and a lady called Di Smith-Gandon. They, they were sort of like the executive of BA and they were, they were trying to save it. And I was in daily contact with, with them because it looked very much like the league was going to fall over. Seamus McPeak at that time owned the Melbourne Tigers and he was he was withdrawing his club. He said, you know, like it's a, a seven-team league, you know, this, this is this is ridiculous, you know, I, I'm going to pull a team out. And no, it was an, an eight-team league, sorry, at that time, eight, and he was going to pull out as well. The South Dragons had gone, he was going to go. Someone else had fallen over to one of the other um, regional clubs. So it was, it was a terribly bad time. So I'm talking to Di Smith-Gander from Basketball Australia, and I said, are you prepared? to lose Seamus and go on with seven teams. And she said, in reality, no. No, we can't really have a league that involves a team from New Zealand and basically has just got six from Australia. Uh, the the, you know, the NBL will fall over. She says, but we're going to say, we're going to bluff and say that we're going to go on with seven teams. I said, really? She said, yeah. And if you wrote that, that would really help us. <laughs> So I wrote this story saying whether Melbourne Tigers hang on or not doesn't matter. The NBL will continue with seven teams. And I, I wrote the story knowing full well that they wouldn't, that if it came to that, but it was basically a bluff on Seamus. And when Seamus saw that the league was going to continue without Melbourne Tigers, doesn't matter, we're going on, um, he blinked. And he pulled them back in. They had the eight teams, and they went forward. So that's a story I wrote where I where I knew what I was writing was untrue, but I also knew that if I wrote it, it would help the situation. It would it would maybe yeah. 
save the situation. And I could always write it, well, they've changed their minds. You know, they're not going to go ahead with seven. So that was one I did where I thought I did basketball a, a good service, but maybe I might have fibbed to the readership. <laughs> no, absolutely, you did a great service, and we remain thankful. Um, hey, how great is Brett Maher? Look, you know, it's interesting because I was having this conversation just this week with somebody uh, who's who's got a bit of history in the game, and they were we were debating whether Werner Lind, who was a star of the '60s in, in South Australia, was the greatest player that South Australia has produced. And in the end, we came to the conclusion: no, Brett Maher was. Brett Maher, Pips Werner, Werner was an, an all-time great, and you know, he's up for a conversation another day. But Marzi. What he was able to do and consistently able to do, most importantly, in big games, he would produce in a big game, was was phenomenal. He was just a great scorer. Uh, and, you know, the year, that year that the Sixers won the championship, 2002, their last one, um, where they should not, never have won it. I think the um, Victoria Titans had a bunch of injuries and uh, the Sixers, or, or maybe it was Magic. Yes. Yeah, and the Sixers knocked them out. And then um, Melbourne Tigers was leading West Sydney 1-0 and should have won that series, and, and they got beaten. It ends up being West Sydney versus Adelaide in the final, which no one would have predicted because I think they were, if, from memory, they were either third or fourth or fifth and sixth on the, when, when, it, when the thing finished. So for them to play off the final was amazing. Now, Marzi was just just beyond description in that series, especially in the third game where they – the 36 has basically destroyed them in the decider here at, at um, what was then the, I think it was the Clipsal Powerhouse at that stage. And he, he, he was on one wing hitting threes. Willie Farley was on the other wing hitting threes. And nobody worked out all year that they didn't have a point guard. Mark Nash was the point guard. But people like Tony Ronaldson would be matching up on Mark Nash. And so Tony just like most big guys, doesn't want to play full-court man. So Nash was never under pressure in the backcourt bringing the ball up. And and they always had Marzi flying on one wing and Farley flying on the other. So um, Brett was able to just do what he, whatever he wanted. And the offense that Phil ran suited Brett because it was a very difficult offense to scout. I think Steve Brini had come up with this, where the person with the ball, whatever they did, determined what everybody else was going to do. So if they got the ball and they went left, that changed something. If they went right, that changed something. If they took one – like they had all these just little rules which made them really difficult to scout and it just – Marzi just thrived in it. When they beat um, Magic in, in Melbourne in the first game in, in 98, I think, um, or no, second game, he was just unstoppable. And, again, he had um, – um, what's his name coaching him? Mike Kelly, um, guarding him. Mike Kelly was defending him. Mike was was a very, very good defensive player, but you know he couldn't do anything. He couldn't do anything to stop him. He was once he got rolling, he was phenomenal, and he was inspirational for the rest of the team. He could drive the whole group. So yeah, Marzi wins, and then Werner Lind is probably our second best South Australian. And I don't think Marzi gets the credit nationally that he deserves. I think he's in shame. He was I agree. Which is unfortunate because he doesn't. It's almost like he, he, he was in that era where everybody spoke about gaze and heel in his almost identical position, and I don't think enough people realise how great Brett was. Yeah, yeah, and I, and I think at the in the, the national level they didn't realise either, and and it was basically um, I, know, I know at the Sydney Olympics after the. Um, 
after Australia had not quite performed as what we hoped they would. Um, I remember Brian Gorgian saying that uh, you can't defend the farmhouse if the front gates are open. And um, unfortunately, the backcourt that we were going with, the front gates were often open. Um, before we leave Adelaide, what, I'm always one of the questions I've got here to ask you is you know, some of the greatest teams you've seen. And, and for me, again, it gets sprouted quite often at the moment that we're putting the best teams on paper and all this sort of things. But I just wondered where you saw the, the 36ers 1998 team that, and let's just reel this off Brett Maher, champion, Darnell Mee, champion, Mark Davis, Martin Catalini, Kevin Brooks. John really, I mean, and that's the sort of team where whether you evaluate a team performance or evaluate them on paper, that's got to be one of the greatest teams in NBL history. But again, you try to tell someone in the NBL these days that they've never heard of them. Yeah, well, that, that first year they won it with uh, had John really, and the following year they had it with David Stiff, another couple of. Uh, fairly handy yeah, in their era. Yeah, they, they were fantastic teams. And while their record isn't as good as the 86 Adelaide team that Ken Cole coached that went 24-2 and two and lost two games on the buzzer, um, the, the teams that Phil built were, were just – they were deep and rich with talent and diverse talent. And what he was able to convey to them – and I think this is important and it's, and it's underestimated – is that they were having fun. You guys are having fun. Not only great players, but you're doing something that you love doing. Uh, enjoy it. Enjoy it. It's not, you know, and so there was always a sense of enjoyment with that team. And I, I think I think teams reflect the coach's attitude. And, you know, Phil would, I know he would, would snipe at the, the referees as they ran past here and there. But generally speaking, the visual you have of speech of, of um, Phil is, is him sitting in his chair with his legs stretched out and his arms behind his head. And if you're looking at that coach and you think he's pretty relaxed, how's his team feeling? Well, they're pretty relaxed. And so you had this, this conglomeration of great talent that was playing relaxed and happy and just, yeah, that, that combination of issues. And, of course, as I mentioned earlier, the, the offense that they ran was really difficult to scout because they wouldn't do the same thing twice. Um, so, yeah, uh, that, that was – that would have, that would those two years, 98, 99, they have to rank as, as um, two of the best teams in, in NBL history for sure. Too many points, in, there was too many team, points in the NBL point system, though, mate, for that team. <laughs> and for anyone that doesn't know what I'm talking about, the NBL introduced this stupid point system where every team, I believe it was 56 or 63, I somewhere around the there, point. you had to fit in with the 63 yeah. points and every player got designated a point, uh, a certain amount of points. If you're a boomer, you got 10 points automatically. If you're an import, you're yeah. at 10 points automatically. There was a loyalty system in place that didn't make sense because you could be loyal to the Melbourne Tigers and then go to the Brisbane Bullets and only be worth a five. It was just a shit Before we go, because I, I, you'll be putting people to sleep at the wheel talking about the point system, were they? Um, <laughs> at least it wasn't my career. Was so, so much, that could also put people to sleep. <laughs> Body, I, I just 
the term boomers culture um, has been thrown around a lot since we got close to winning and then won our first ever medal. But whenever you talk about the boomers, I think you've got to talk about the Opals who really set the way for the boomers and probably had their culture just as strong as what the boomers did long before what we did. And I think anyone who's played for the boomers would realise we aspired to have the success they did and they got there a long time before us. So uh, I'm fascinated in your evaluation of, and it's such a broad question, but the boomers and the opals uh, across the time you've been covering and, and watching them. It's It's been interesting because the, the back in the 60s, Merv Harris, who was the coach of the Australian women's team at that time, was South Australian, he said to me, the, the Australian woman will always go further internationally than the Australian man because they just play harder and, they, you know, he had his reasons. And, and at that particular period, then you see the Opal start to take off and it's like, hell, they can – there is didn't take them very long before they were in the top four in the world where they consistently stayed. And uh, I think Tom Maher has a lot to do with that and is, you know, we're talking about recency bias. He's overlooked, but he, he set the table before Lauren Jackson uh, came along and before the Penny Taylors that were that made it easier for the subsequent coaches because you had these these absolutely outstanding females. He, he was able to put together great teams where they, they were, the depth was was amazing. And that started in, in um, 94, after we bombed out at the 92 Olympics. He started in 94, got us at the World Championship, got us into the medal round for the first time. And then by 96, they were winning a medal. 98, they were winning a medal. 2000, they were up to a silver medal. And so they were always on that on a steady rise. And the culture of that group was sustained by subsequent coaches, but the subsequent coaches now had even better players. Like I mentioned, you, you got Lauren coming through, you got Christy Harrow coming through, you got Susie Batkovic, Blinda Snell. There was just this real deep core of rich talent that had seen what had gone before and been inspired. So we got, we got better and better for a period. And it's really interesting to me that it was not long after Lauren and Susie and, and Belinda and some of these players um, were no longer in the Opals, that the culture began to fail. And the culture of the Opals began to fail when they started to make concessions for players that they had in the past. And you know, we're talking about Liz Cambridge here, and, and like they're, they're in a dip. They're in a dip at the same time as the boomers who had been inspired by their culture and, and had been developing their own. Uh, like I think ahead of Rio, they went to Uluru, and they built some courts for the, uh, an Aboriginal community there. And they, they stood there and looked at the rock and just got to feel a bit about, hey, we're, this is what we're representing. This is who we are. And, and their culture started to grow independently now of the Opals. And, and, can, and they were really stiff. Let's face it, in Rio, they got robbed. They got absolutely they robbed of a medal, no question. Um, so to then sort of recover from that and to keep keep pushing upwards because, again, they were unlucky in the following World Championship and then comes Tokyo at a time that the boomers are going forward, that they've got these new young faces in there, the, the Matisse Thibels, the Josh Greens, those sorts of guys who, who have to actually be taught the Australian culture, who are listening to Australian music at training being played by Joe Ingalls and Paddy Mills and Matthew Delavadova who are, who are sort of – bring in the past and uh, the future, putting it all into the present. Fantastic. At the same time as the Opals were dipping, and it wasn't really 
until Lauren Jackson came back made a return at 41 years old at the World Championship last year, that you've sort of seen a revival of the Opals. And, well, we're back. You know, we're back to who we're, who we're supposed to be, where, where no one's getting priorities or no one's getting extra things. We're, we're back to representing our country and the culture that, that we wanted. And people like Tess Madgen, who was uh, the captain there, uh, she's, she's the embodiment of that. So the Opals, I think, are back on the upswing. And the, the boomers, they're just continuing. I'm really looking forward to this World Cup and then the Olympics as to what they can do, build on that bronze. But, you know, there's a few other good countries out there too at the moment that are surprising. Like I look at Canada and a few others and go, oh, geez, it's not going to be easy. You know, it's, it's one thing that as, a, as an island nation geographically removed from the rest of the basketball world, we oftentimes get caught up in our own improvement and tend to forget that the rest of the world's improving just as quickly and sometimes a little bit more quickly. And you're right, these World Cup, or this World Cup is going to be incredible. To, you know, it's as much as we're all on the top of the list and we all hope we improve and win a silver or even a gold, but I think realistically we have to realise how hard it is to even make that final four. And if we let, let's say we finish fifth to eighth, it's not necessarily a failure. It's a tough global game. It's incredibly difficult. Honestly, I, I actually think that's where we really sit between five and eight. I think any result between five and eight is a success, which means the boomers have actually been quite successful over a longer period of time than we give them credit for. We put we hang too much on on that hanging that medal on somebody's neck that, that getting the medal is the be all and end all. And absolutely achieving it in Tokyo was fabulous. I'm sure you guys felt it. We all felt it. It was outstanding. But where we really sit is five to eight. So anytime we are actually in the in the discussion for a medal or for even a gold medal, that is such an extraordinary thing given how many of our young sportsmen, Aussie rules football or NRL rugby, takes away. You know, so, so we're not like picking from – Everybody, we're just picking from the people that fall in love with basketball, and for us to be so prominent is is an absolute achievement. You know, I I, I bristle when you know, we come sixth or fifth or something in a championship and it's sort of put down as a failure. It's not. It's not. Or even if we lose the medal, we, we're in the top four nations in in the world in a game, game played by over two hundred countries. Jesus, that's phenomenal. That's a perfect way to end this one. I think it's we, we can't wait for the World Cup. Body, it's, as always, it's an absolute pleasure listening and learning from you and we look forward to keeping in touch. For those of you who are still listening on, we uh, check out the Brad and Body podcast. You can get this every every week, Body, every couple of weeks. We're just taking a bit of a break because we're sort of between seasons, but once we're, once we're rolling, it's every week. Yep. Yeah, yeah, go and catch up on some old ones. I, I must admit, I really enjoyed the, ta- the Tom Abercrombie interview you did. I thought that was a ripper. So if you're looking for one to listen, go and listen to Tom Abercrombie. Um, Body, again, thanks so much for joining us, and we'll speak to you during the World Cup. Absolute pleasure. I look forward to seeing you again when I'm even more grey. <laughs>